Father in heaven, we meet again today. We again are asking for your presence. You would provide your wisdom and your trueness to whatever information is presented here today. We ask for your presence, your sweet spirit to be in this class. And we pray these things in Jesus' name, amen. Yeah, I sort of wish I could shut this door, but I'm told I should not shut this door for uh, security reasons, I guess. Something like that, yeah. Good morning. <laughs> All right, here's a, here's a quiz. This is, this is pass or fail, by the way. This is, this is pass or fail quiz. Ready? How many of you read the New York Times article, All Rock, No Action? All right, about almost half you did. Okay. Um, hate to punish those who read it, but I'm just going to spend a teeny bit of time on this, okay? Uh, because I know people are coming in. So anyway... Uh, he starts out making reference to Live 8, that extraordinary media event that some people of good intentions in the West just orchestrated. He said it would have left us Africans indifferent if we hadn't realized that it was an insult, an insult, excuse me, both to us and to common sense. He says we have nothing against those who this month in a stadium, a street, a park in Berlin, London, Moscow, Philadelphia, gathered crowds and played guitar and talked about global poverty and aid for Africa. But we are troubled to think that they are so misguided about what Africa's real problem is, and dismayed by their willingness to propose solutions on our behalf. Uh, we Africans know what the problem is, and no one else should speak in our name. Africa has men of letters and science, great thinkers and stifled geniuses who at the risk of torture rise up to declare the truth and demand liberty. So you take that paragraph there, and this is sort of a, a situation. This is, uh, this is a part of the history of aid. I'm not, I'm not wanting to make a judgment here. I'm simply saying that Uh, for example, the World Bank in their charter, uh, written into their charter is the idea that we will ignore the government of whatever country we're in. Okay. Well, you can see where they would have good motives for doing that. You know, they're there to feed the poor. Unfortunately, Oftentimes, I'll just say too many times, it has had the effect of propping up uh, dictators. So it's kind of beyond us. It's kind of complicated. They're sure that I'm going to be able to do much about that problem, but it's a part of what we're talking about. And this is what uh, this man is talking about. He says, don't insult Africa, this continent so rich yet so badly led. Instead, insult its leaders who have ruined everything. 
Our anger is all the greater because despite all the precedents for life, despite all the evidence of genocide, we didn't hear anyone at Live 8 raise a cry for democracy in Africa. Don't the organizers of the concerts realize that Africa lives under the oppression of rulers uh, like, and he mentions the name here, who just eliminated term limits in Uganda so he can be president indefinitely? And Omar Bongo, who has become immensely rich in his three decades of running Gabon, don't they know what is happening in Cameroon, Chad, Togo, and the Central African Republic? Don't they understand that fighting poverty is fruitless if dictatorships remain in place? Uh, and he says that some more, neither debt relief nor huge amounts of food aid nor an invasion of experts will change anything. These will merely prop up the continent's dictators. It's up to each nation to liberate itself and to help itself. When there is a problem in the United States, in Britain, and France, the citizens vote to change their leaders. In those times when it wasn't possible to freely vote to change those leaders, the people revolted. In Africa, our leaders have led us into misery, and we need to rid ourselves of these cancers. We would have preferred for the musicians in Philadelphia and London to have marched and sung for a political revolution. Instead, they mourned a corpse while forgetting to denounce the murderer. What is at issue is in Africa where dictators kill, steal, and usurp power, yet are treated like heroes at meetings of the African Union. What is at issue is rulers like Francois Bozis, I'm sure I pronounced that wrong, the coup leader running the Central African Republic, mentions another name here, who just succeeded his father as president of Togo, free to trample universal suffrage and muzzle their people with no danger that they'll lose their seats at the United Nation. Who here wants a concert against poverty when an African is born, lives, and dies without ever being able to vote freely? Uh, be, but the truth is that it was not for us, for Africa, that the musicians at Live 8 were singing. It was to amuse the crowds and to clear their own consciences, and whether they realize it or not, to reinforce dictatorships. They still believe us to be like children that they must save, as if we don't realize ourselves what the source of the problem is. So that's, that's a cry from an intellectual leader in Africa. So... So it's complicated. It, it, it's, uh, um, but that whole thing illustrates, as I said yesterday, paternalism, and it also illustrates, um, well, yeah, I mean, it's just throwing money at the problem without really understanding the problem. So that's a principle that is taking place for you know, whole nations, but it's also in our own dealing with individuals. We're just throwing money at a problem that we don't really, haven't taken the time to understand. You get me? And uh, Okay, so we're going to finish up uh, talking about aid for just a little bit here, and then we're going to move on uh, to something more positive. But... Uh, I have just a little bit more video to show. Let's see what we got here. I want to say anything. Okay, so eight minutes. Uh, the first eight minutes is is uh, just a clear example how 
aid can hurt in the long term. Yes? Handouts are on the way, but uh, because I didn't finish yesterday, I, I'm, I think I'm skipping my Bible portion today. Pretty much what's in the handout is my Bible portion. So uh, uh, we'll be good on that. I'll just do that tomorrow. So, yeah. After that, uh, I have a short thing about NGOs and then uh, another talk by an African economist, professor, intellectual leader, very short, and, uh, and then we'll be about done with that. Okay? We're making small experience with the solar panels. This is the raw material. We want them to become actual streetlights, solar streetlights. We want them to be part of something special. And because both of us, we grew up in Haiti, so you know, we know what the situation is. You have plenty of sunshine. So is there a way that you can harvest energy from the sun and to resolve the energy problem? So this is something that is it's completely different. And Wait a minute. Completely new. Sorry about that. So these are some uh, friends from Haiti that started a solar lighting business from scratch. Ended up uh, being able to hire a number of fathers from shanty towns, change their lives, and we see what happened. At the beginning, almost everybody thought those guys were really crazy. They don't have nothing to do, spending their time making some experiment on solar panels and LED light bulbs. And even now, we come with the product and say, this is a patient-made product. Most of people, they don't believe us. At the beginning, having a $500 contract was great news because we have, we have money for next week. This is the way we started. Now, we have like big children. And we have uh, 62 employees right now. So, we think we found the right track. <laughs> Most of the employees we, we have come from Antigua, come from Cité Soleil, come from Matissan, Cité Castro, you know, very populated area. We train them here. There is no uh, social security networking game. So for our workers, we are the social security network. If they were not working, probably some of them would be gang members. In fact, when we were studying in this life, the situation was really, really bad in Haiti. And some of the guys, they are trying to refuse them to become gang members. I mean, they offer you like 500 US Amazon and you are an employee guy, you have no future in this so you don't see yourself as part of nothing. So it's easy to accept this offer. I mean, the temptation is high. And some of the guys at the beginning, I mean, we were really small, and they were calling me and saying, Hey, I have no money, I have nothing. I said, Don't go there, don't go there. Because you have no future in the game. We have installed 200 lights in Cité Soleil. They know that Enosa is hiring people from Cité Soleil and brought the light to Cité Soleil. When you do something, you can see the impact on the population. And you can say, this is because of me.
not to give them the fish every day. Your, your goal should be to give me fishing work and to teach me how to fish and then move out. But after 40 years, if you're still here, there's a problem. Okay, so uh, I just want to say that uh, the, they mentioned the one NGO, their partners worldwide, who are doing things quite a bit differently. Uh, they're, I think they're in, I won't say, but many, many countries. They are a group of, uh, frankly, reformed businessmen. I mean, when I say reformed, I mean, um, they call it, uh, you know, reformed. Their, their church, what do you call them? Christian Reformed, yes. And I was so, you know, I, I've been, like I said, I've done a lot of reading and so on and so forth. And before I saw them on this video, I actually discovered this Partners Worldwide, and I was thrilled uh, because I could see they were doing things totally differently. And then to find out they were right in Grand Rapids, uh, Michigan. And they're in uh, many, many countries around the world. Uh, businessmen who are going to these countries as advisors, uh, coming alongside, helping. Uh, it's really, really a tremendous thing that they're doing. And I actually will talk about them a little bit tomorrow. I just wanted to skip a little section here. It's hard to get exact, so I'm just going to start here. We'll see about 10 seconds or so of I don't know what. Palestine is in the context of the Cold War, competing for the resources, and a neo-neo type of colonialism. You know, I've talked to Hayes saying, you know, we had colonialism, we had neo-colonialism, we had neo-neo-colonialism, and now we have to develop more. <laughs> Which is just another colonialism. I uh, once spent a rather happy afternoon in a place called Malibu. Uh, counting the number of vehicles of different aid agencies. Theodore Dalrymple is an English physician who has worked in Tanzania, Zimbabwe, South Africa, and the Gilbert Islands. He returned to the United Kingdom in 1990, where he served as a psychiatrist with prisoners and in inner city Birmingham. He is the author of numerous books, including Zanzibar to Timbuktu and Life at the Bottom. Malapa is the um, capital of Equatorial Guinea, where the first democratically elected president killed or drove into exile approximately a third of the population, and he used to keep the national treasury under his bed. When the president left the capital, they turned the electricity off, as being no longer required. So I counted the number of aid agencies, and I think I counted in about three hours, I counted 27 in large white Toyotas air conditioner book. And really the devastation of Equatorial Guinea was very good business for them. The salary is uh, very good, it tends to be tax free. Unlike your life at home, you will have servants. And I think it was Schumpeter who said that one servant is worth a household full of appliances. A lot of the donor agencies, when I see the country heads driving around in the Posh cars and living in the big houses, I see multiple colonial governments. This is the new face of the colonial government. Ghanaian software entrepreneur Herman Chinere Hesse is the founder of Soft Tribe and BSL. Let's just skip that part there. Uh, 
See if I can figure out. Now I'm going to forward this just a little bit. Excuse me. I want to go to. I'll just go there. And... We are no longer getting excited by. Thank you. Eight. Thank you very from much. From IMF, from the World Bank. They perpetuate your misery by giving you a loan, make you a slave, economic slave, because you are chained by the loan. So it becomes a way of colonizing the economies of the poor countries. Now there are a lot of Africans who are very angry, angry at the condition of Africa. The Kinder generation is a new breed of Africans. They are going to wait for governments to do things for them. That's the Cheetah generation. And Africa's salvation rests on the backs of these cheetahs. In contrast, because we have the Hippo generation. <laughs> the Hippo generation are the ruling elites. They are those who have monopolized political power. And they are those who are stuck in their muddy pedagogical path. And they believe that the only way you can solve the problems in Africa is by giving the state more power and more foreign aid. And it is on the back of this people generation which the United Nations, the World Bank, and the IMF have been trying to hitch a ride with this same old aid driven boom dog. And that's why we're not getting anywhere in Africa. Out of the 54 African countries, only 16 of them are democratic. Now, these leaders stay in office 10, 20, 30, and even 40 years in office. And they don't even step down. They groom their sons to take over. Africans are fed up with this kind of leadership. When people support more foreign aid for Africa, the more they're condemning us in Africa to live under dictators who will not respect our rights to access to rule of law. No doubt, originally, the idea was compassionate. You saw people suffering from poverty, and therefore your immediate response is to give. But unfortunately, giving on a large scale uh, distorts. Take a country like Tanzania, where I actually work. Its greatest receipt in foreign currency was for aid. And the whole of the political process actually was who got their hands on the aid. Make no mistake, I am not against humanitarian aid. Of course, if something, a disaster happens, we better rally and help each other. But when humanitarian aid becomes a way of life, then we all have a big problem. Emergency disaster relief has become the permanent model. And that model is what I call the current aid industry. I've never heard of a country that developed on aid. If you know of one, just let me know. I know about countries that develop on trade and innovation and business. I don't know of any country that got so much aid and they suddenly became a first world country. I've never heard of such a country. So the, the track is wrong. That track ends to nowhere. There is a school of thought out there that I don't agree with, where indeed people think they owe the poor people to give them money without thinking about how. We are going to use this money. Aid leads to more aid and more aid and more aid and less independence of the people receiving aid. 
second is a wrong notion for people who have money or who be engaged. They feel good that they're helping, but the best way to help is to help people to be able to stand on their own. A government cannot encourage by local. Now, when we talk to the international donor community, they say it's not their policy and that's their when we talk to the government, the government says, hey, we're not allowed to buy with donor money, local products. That's just the way it is. With their money, they decide who gets it. For example, I companies in Ghana got together to bid for a contract. Together. Now, everything was going very well. Okay, so just uh, another little skip here. I think we already uh, saw that portion there. So I'm just going to jump ahead just a teeny bit. I want you to see... Pretty interesting about one minute here. So right after this guy. It's That's not available on YouTube yet. Yeah, you gotta buy it. <laughs> a large part of aid is of course a subsidy to the companies that do the work in African countries. I myself worked on such a project and I saw myself the incredible waste of the road project actually in Tanzania. And the foreign aid amounted to a huge subsidy for a company that could not possibly have got the contract in a, in a real market. And these can amount to hundreds of millions of dollars. And the so-called foreign aid actually goes back to the people working for the company. And I suppose the shareholders of that company. And I myself am a personal beneficiary of that. Anyway, I, I, in essence, I bought, uh, I bought my first house from the proceeds of foreign aid. Foreign aid has been excellent to me. It's aided me immensely. It's allowed me to have an interesting life, to travel, live in good conditions, be well paid, no tax. Couldn't be better. Everybody in development agrees. Everybody knows the system doesn't work. They don't say oh. When you, you sit down and have beers with somebody, you sit down, you know, we all feel the same thing. The system's broken. It's not working. It's not happening like it's supposed to. Everybody's, uh, it's, some people get very emotional about it. Everybody in development knows the system is something morale. Absolutely, you know. I'm not saying anything. Everybody else doesn't know. All right, so uh, that is our video, the rest of our section about aid, okay? And, well, actually, I wanted to show you just one more because I want you to just be aware. Uh, you mentioned um, that. Let's see here. You mentioned YouTube. Uh, let's see here. Uh, these particular videos are are not. Actually, they do have short uh, short flicks of them on on YouTube. You can find that under uh, well on YouTube under the channel called Acton Institute. Acton, A C T O N, as in Lord Acton. Uh, I just wanted to show you very short of another important player. Uh, this is off of YouTube, so it's I can't. And uh, this is uh, 
another African, a, a woman that came out of, out of Zambia who got her master's at Harvard, her PhD at Oxford. She's an economist. She worked for the uh, you know, we big Western financial companies, and uh, she wrote a book called Dead Aid. She's very passionate, highly intelligent. I'm just going to have her for about a minute and a half here because she is an important, I guess you could say, player in this, important um, opinion uh, influencer, okay? Many of us believe that aid to Africa is crucial to people on the continent. Not getting some and must stop. Moya was born and raised in Zambia, but educated at Oxford and Harvard. She's worked for both the World Bank and Goldman Sachs. So the book is called Dead Aid. In the West, it's been drummed into us that we have a moral responsibility to provide more aid to Africa. Now, in a new book, we start from the premise of not only is aid not a solution, it in fact is part of a problem. To explain that general thesis, um, the problem is that it is religion, and uh, the book basically outlines uh, many, many reasons why it is that aid has failed uh, to deliver on the government promises. Let me just take a little bit back uh, in history as to what the origins of the aid numbers sure. are. The 1950s and 60s were a time when uh, many African countries, in particular, but emerging countries in general, were um, coming out of the colonial period. Mm -hmm. And um, at this time, there was um, a literature by uh, an economics space um, by Christina and Strauss in the 19, 1966 paper, where they basically identified a very simple equation that savings would lead to investment and investment would lead to growth. But the argument at that time was that in poor countries, there was no savings because these were newly formed countries that didn't have the requisite savings that would lead to investment and that would lead to growth. So um, basically, policy at the time said instead of savings, we'll use aid, and the aid would investment. Correct, and aid would lead to investment and aid to growth. And the idea was that you'd get not only growth, but you'd have an alleviation of poverty, mm -hmm. because with growth, you could then move people out of poverty. But if you look back over the past sixty years, where Africa received over one trillion dollars of aid, um, the issue then becomes on those two metrics: growth and poverty. Have things improved? And the answer is a resounding no. It's well, especially when you're pointing this all backwards. Absolutely. Exactly right. Just explain that to me. Sure. That seems like a trillion dollars mm -hmm. gone, yeah. essentially. Basically. Yeah, and poverty more intentionally. Absolutely. And just to illustrate, in the 1970s, um, there were about 10% of Africans lived on a dollar a day. Now, over 70% of Africans are on a dollar a day. Um, so things have got fundamentally worse. And if you look at um, growth, Again, Africa, to, to quote Paul Collier, who's my PhD supervisor, Africa's actually shearing off. So things are getting worse, and the rest of the world is moving in one direction, Africa's going in a completely different direction. Basically, you're saying that what we should be doing in Western world is giving African countries notice five years. So, Dambija Moya, uh, her book, Dead Aid, uh, it's been around a while. Eventually, I'm going to get around to handing out my bibliography list. It's not on there just because it has been around a while, but uh, uh, she's highly intelligent and, again, a passionate spokesperson for Africa, saying, please, don't help us anymore. Not the way you're doing it. Okay, okay so that is the end of the AIDS section. You feel bad enough now? Are you totally <laughs> deflated? Yes. 
I'm hoping, of course, I'm new to this session. Is, are you going to show us an example of a successful deprogramming? Wow, let's do that. And, and, uh, and, and evangelism as well. Okay. All right. Great minds think alike, huh? Uh, so, as soon as I give this, I don't know how long a talk on this one slide here, uh, we're going to go into that, okay? So, here is, you know what? Because this is the only slide I'm going to use. The rest I'm going to save till tomorrow because I'm trying to fit things in. Uh, I'll just wait and I'll have, I'm going to have them collated when you come in. So, okay, so, teach a man to fish. This is, we already made reference to this in our class. Also, even in our video, I think, somebody made reference to this well-known saying, you know, give them a fish, they eat for a day, teach them to fish, they eat for a lifetime. Um, what this phrase sort of misses, and what we need to be aware of, what we need to think about is, uh, I guess you could say, the actual lake that the fishing is being done in. Okay? I can teach a person to fish up in uh, northern Ontario, and it won't take much teaching. You know, they can put about anything on the end of the line, and before very long, they're going to pull out a great big fish, right? If I take them down to uh, my hometown and take them to the Flint River, teach them how to fish, why, they're probably not going to have much success, right? Uh, and this is, the, this is the thing we have to keep in mind, is that uh, African people, Haitian people, they know how to fish. Number one, they have not been given access to the lake, that is to free markets. Number two, the lake that they are fishing in is so polluted, as in corruption and dictatorship and high taxes and loan sharks and whatever else is on the list, that even if they catch a little tiny fish, it's, it's not even going to be good. You, see, you get the point? So, and this again is the macro picture, and you and I may not have much influence on that, at least as individuals. We'd like to think we would eventually as a group, but um, we have to be aware of the situation, and that is the situation. Uh, and that goes back to the paternalism. People in these countries are not poor because they're dumber than us. It's because they're born in a place where the lake is not much good for fishing. Okay. And this is uh, extremely important. Now, I just want to give you an example here from uh, Hernando de Soto's book, The Mystery of Capitalism. Uh, I'm going to show you some video from him in a moment. He is uh, one of the people who has done more to help the poor in this world than, you know, he's one of the top five in my, in my book. And uh, I just want to share a few thoughts from his book before we uh, go into that, introducing him on video. Uh, here... He says, imagine a country where nobody, nobody can identify who owns what. 
addresses cannot be easily verified, people cannot be made to pay their debts, resources cannot conveniently be turned into money, ownership cannot be divided into shares, descriptions of assets are not standardized and cannot be easily compared, and the rules that govern property vary from neighborhood to neighborhood or even from street to street. You have just put yourself into the life of a developing country or former communist nation. More precisely, you have imagined life for 80% of its population, which is marked off as sharply from its westernized elite as black and white South Africans were once separated by apartheid. So he's saying that a lack of property rights and a lack of rule of law uh, are huge when it comes to poverty. And here uh, is a little story here. Uh, so by the way, this man... Um, He's from Peru. He's an economist from Peru. And there was, I guess I'll just call them communists for lack of a more precise term, sort of communists slash terrorists who were running the show there. And, and uh, he, as an economist, began to understand. He finally understood, and he wrote a book about private property, the right of private property and how, uh, you know, as one major reform, the other just simple rule of law. Well, uh, he was, his his offices were bombed. His you know, I think his car was bombed. His offices were machine gunned, or one or the other. Uh, either way, it's not a very pleasant experience. He had he had published a book, and that's when he started experiencing these things. And he told himself he was, he said he was walking. Anyway, he's about ready to pull out. He said, no, he said, you know, I don't know if this man's Roman Catholic, I, don't, I really don't know, but he said, no, this is, this is truth, the world is dying for, and I'm going forward, and uh, by God's grace, he, uh, he conquered, he's still alive, had a huge influence in Peru, and now he, his uh, services are, are um, asked for from many countries around the world, simply trying to help these countries sort out these issues of private property and rule of law. Okay, and I just want to share this experience here. Uh, he, uh, he went into in, in Peru, and, and, I, and they've done this. They've repeated this experiment in various countries. Uh, uh, one of his lawyer friends told him that if he wanted to set up a business, they could do that in about thirty days. About thirty days. He himself, you know a man of means and successful person and speaks English and so on. Well, he took two, I think they were graduate students. They, and they, they bought, a, I think, two sewing machines, something like this. Uh, and he said he wanted them to go out and set up and legalize this business. These two individuals, I'm going from memory here, uh, I'm just going to read this. He says, our goal was to create a new and perfectly legal business. The team then began filling out the forms, standing in the lines, and making the bus trips into central Lima to get all the certifications required to operate according to the letter of the law, a small business in Peru. Notice, they spent six hours a day at it and finally registered the business 289 days later. Six hours a day, 289 days later, they were able to open a business with, as he says here, although the garment workshop was geared to operating with only one worker, 
The cost of legal registration was $1,231, 31 times the monthly minimum wage. Uh, he says to obtain legal authorization to build a house on state-owned land took six years and 11 months, requiring 207 administrative steps and 52 government offices. Uh, to obtain a legal title for that piece of land took 728 steps. We also found that a private bus, jitney, or taxi driver who wanted to obtain official recognition of his route faced 26 months of red tape. Okay. Uh, also mentions here the Philippines, a uh, person who has built a dwelling in a settlement on either state-owned or privately-owned urban land to purchase it legally, he would have to form an association with his neighbors in order to qualify for state housing finance program, the entire process could necessitate 168 steps involving 53 public and private agencies and taking 13 to 25 years. Why? Why? Well, it's, uh, it's called corruption. It's called corruption bureaucracy. So this is a part of the lake, you see what I'm saying? And... Uh, you know, I just want to tell this story. Uh, here in the United States, there's a family that moved here. They're refugees. They happen to be Korean refugees. Uh, probably don't know about the Korean, but they suffered horribly in their uh, Korean state, which is in the country of Burma. And uh, just, I mean, genocide for decades. And we have a number of them in, uh, in, in the Grand Rapids area. And this particular family arrived here about six, seven months ago. They're Buddhists, six boys. Uh, they came directly from a refugee camp in, in Thailand where all these boys would have been born. Three of the boys belonged to uh, this lady's sister who had died. In any case, uh, we helped them to do their income taxes. He came here, started working right away in one of the rendering factories. And... Uh, and so he needed to do his taxes, so we helped him. Actually, I was able to get him an appointment at one of the places in town, legitimate places that does taxes for free for, uh, you know, a poor people. And um, they did their taxes very well. And then, uh, when it came, and then, and then uh, they got a letter from IRS, which, of course, they couldn't read the letter, but uh, I was able to read the letter. I never saw such a letter in my life. Uh, I paid taxes about every three years, uh, ever since I've been, no. I never saw such a letter, and maybe, I guess it's new, but they're saying because of, you know, um, um, identity theft, before we send you your refund check, which they had six kids, so it was quite a check, uh, you know, over $1,000 was a lot of money for these people, more money than they ever made in their whole lives, for sure. Uh, but anyway, we need you to go online and, you know, uh, we have some questions there so you can prove that you're you. So I took all their information. I went online. And of course, <laughs> I, couldn't, I couldn't get the job done. It, the, the system said, I'm sorry, we can't. I put all the information in there. Sorry, we can't, you know, we can't uh, confirm who you are. You're going to have to call us. Well, I already knew that I'd have to go to their house and, um, you know, make sure they're sitting there to give this guy permission, you know, they would ask this lady or her husband, you know, is it okay if we talk to him? So I went to their home, made this call, 
I'll say I got through quite quickly. And, uh, but no, they don't do that. We don't do that over the phone. You're going to have to make an appointment. And uh, so that was, well, what it was, I don't know, that was May or something. So we, today was, is the appointment. And uh, fortunately, one of my friends is taking that family this afternoon to the IRS, loaded with, oh, by the way, the guy told me, I said, well, you know, they have their Homeland Security card. You know, I, I would guess that wouldn't be easy to, to uh, you know, uh, make a counterfeit. <laughs> You know, it's from the United States government. You know, you get that when you come here as a refugee. And, uh, oh, we don't accept. He said, that's not on my list. We don't accept that. Idea. <laughs> yeah. So I'm just saying, here's this family. This is where, you know, we can help. There's a lot of people in, in, in Michigan. You know, they come here. They don't know the language. They certainly don't know the system. And... Uh, if I hadn't have happened to hear about this family, uh, uh, and I, believe me, I've heard of several cases where uh, tax preparers have taken really good money to do a really poor job on these people's taxes. And, you know, I would dare say, although I don't know, I would dare say they would never got their tax refund. And I, I hope today goes well. So... Um, not to sound like a politician or an anti-politician, but um, government can very much get in the way. It certainly does in, in most of these countries, and to some extent, although, thank God, not so much, but even in our country. Yes? This is the way I think we're going to lose our freedom, because of things like this. On the other hand, my son and his wife, they had a daughter on. Somebody did file for them, <laughs> and they so really? they, so these yes, but right. it all worked out so that their transfer of the uh, address and everything wow. it, it got stopped. But it took them months and months and months to work out. So yeah. these things are put in place. Yeah, but it, it's it's going to destroy liberties. Right, place for protection. But yep. Okay, so. Uh, Teach a man to fish, yes, but be aware that many people do not, do not have a lake to fish in. That's not much. Yes, sir. Uh, Christian Reformed people, what program are they doing? It's, uh, you know, I actually have that on tomorrow as a part of my positive oh, okay. things. It's called Partners Worldwide. Uh, basically, I'll just show you a few pictures or website and whatnot. But uh, they basically, um, it's business people, uh, successful business people, and they, they are in countries around the world. They come alongside of people. They do, and we'll talk about all this, uh, microloans and so on. And uh, it's wonderful. I was just so thrilled when I found that uh, NGO. And they were mentioned on our video here. That's why I brought them up uh, today. Here we are. Now, I'm going to just uh, do a short video um, introducing this uh, Hernando de Soto, okay? Let's see, actually I have, uh, I have 10, I have 25 minutes is all I have. Wow. Let me, uh, I kind of gave you a verbal introduction about him, and therefore I think I'm going to go to this video. Okay, so this is going to be a fairly long. You will see him in there. But uh, I'm sorry I didn't have time to show you a little 
introduction of him and his work. Fernando de Soto. And he, again, he has had a huge influence around the world basically working with uh, private property and rule of law, of law rights. Uh, he's going into, uh, as, a, as an advisor, he's invited into many, many countries. You know, again, I don't know what his belief system is. I'm, I'm kind of guessing he's Roman Catholic because he's from Peru. As far as I'm concerned, uh, you know, he's, he's uh, a man of God, as it were. He stood up at the peril of his life, and he is uh, giving his life uh, in a wonderful and powerful way um, in helping the poor. Okay? Human beings created in the image of God. As Christians, we're called to help. But sometimes, our help can make things worse. We wanted to learn more, so we hit the road. Is that okay or? Go and look at the tallest tree in the forest and pick the best seed of the tallest tree and plant it in a flower pot. You get uh, about a meter high or less than a meter high uh, plant. And exactly pick out the tall tree that you saw in the forest. <laughs> so what's wrong with this little one? Uh, is it the seed? No, we pick the best seed possible, plant it on that. So what's wrong? The wrong thing is the flower pot because you didn't allow the base on which it to grow. If you had planted it in the real soil, it would be as tall as the tree that you saw in the forest. So poor people are bonsai people. Society doesn't provide them the base. One of the trends in development is a growing appreciation for entrepreneurship and enterprise solutions to poverty. When you look around the developing world, one thing is clear. The problem isn't a lack of entrepreneurs. What's lacking is the fertile soil that allows entrepreneurs to flourish. We've talked about access to capital, but it's more than that. What poor countries need are the conditions of justice. Things like private property and rule of law that allow individuals and families to create wealth and prosperity for themselves and their communities. Now, property rights and rule of law can seem mundane and academic, especially when people are in dire need. But as we'll see, the Bible repeatedly emphasizes their importance, in part because they are crucial to creating justice and opportunity for the poor. Here we are in Kenya, and the one thing that is manifestly obvious on any street you walk down in Kenya is the energy of the people. You can just tell that they're looking for opportunities, they're going someplace, they have a sense of determination, they have a sense of purpose. And yet, just in back of the facility that we're at here, there's a huge slum the size of Central Park. Why is that?
Joshua Omoga, I'm a businessman. I left my role there come to Nairobi to search for a job and better my life. After searching for a job for more than five years, I could not find a job. So I started a small scale business. I borrowed some money from my friend and started by selling vegetables. By my doorsteps. And uh, after that most of business, what is now sustaining me? When I was in Nairobi, I had the chance to talk with Joshua and visit his shop in Tibera. He has no private property or land titling, so he can't get access to the sort of financial tools that business people in the West take for granted. I live in the same place I was. And this place is very small. No, the place is not mine, so you cannot expand it. It's so easy to register the business because Kibera has temporary structures, and the government does not the government temporary structures to be registered. So that's one of the challenges I'm facing. My future plan is to invest heavily in my business and uh, I'm planning to relocate from Kibera to another place where life is more better than Kibera and uh, register my business. For now, I'm saving for my son so that when he reaches this, the time he's going to start his school, primary level, I'll be having something in the account to support his education. Joshua is like many entrepreneurs, looking to provide a better future for their families. But this lack of clear private property rights and rule of law stifles the entrepreneurial spirit and blocks the capacity to create prosperity for themselves and their communities. When you come to Argentina and you ride in Buenos Aires, it's one of the most beautiful cities in the world. You think you're in Paris or some lovely European capital. It has wide streets, beautiful architecture, an abundance of restaurants and cafes, and a rich cultural life. Yet only a mile from here, we can see some of the most intense poverty imaginable. Sometimes the physical differences between rich and poor neighborhoods are so palpable that it's easy to miss an immaterial difference. The poor section has almost no access to the courts, no enforcement of contracts, no clear property title, and often very little police protection. It lacks the rule of law. We saw this concretely in an area outside of Buenos Aires called La Cava. Marcus Hilding Olsen is a city councilman in the local area who works closely with leaders and residents in Macau to help develop the rule of law. Lacava La is this shanty town where different uh, SMAs calculate between 15 or 20,000 people live there. Policemen don't go inside of it. There is no 
taxes, people don't, um, don't even pay for their electricity. And so, so it's a place where they live apart from the rule of law. A few years ago, there was some really high crime rates in the area of old San Isidro. And many people blamed it that many of the crimes came from people inside the Gama. So the government decided to put policemen, but they put policemen on the border of the Gama. They go around the streets, but they don't go inside. It is a sort of wall that they put, but you actually it's a way of protecting people that live outside the Gama from people that live inside it. But they won't protect the people that live inside it, and they are the ones that actually suffer the most insecurity of all. Because so many, most of the people that live inside of it are people that are hardworking and they want to have a better life and they want to develop and they try to get their kids to school and they're really struggling to, to have a better life. The real problem for large numbers of people is that hitherto at any rate there has been no reason to make an effort because any effort to improve their situation will just be expropriated by the political class. When you have corruption in a country, people are just discouraged. They, there is no hope. They don't see themselves successful in the, in the long term. The government is not putting in place that environment that can help you to have that hope. It's just useless. The rule of law, I think, is best understood by considering its opposite, which is the rule of man. The rule of man is when you have the rule of force, the rule of power, the rule of arbitrary, subjective opinion. The rule of law means that there are stable, reasonable laws that apply to everyone, regardless of their station in life. In many developing countries, you really don't have rule of law. You don't have contracts. You have corrupt judges. You have people who have judges sitting in on their own court cases who happen to be their brother or their sister. Try and imagine a football match without rules. Well, you don't get a game going. The rules are crucial to get that game going. But everybody knows how to drive a ball. Everybody knows how to buy and sell. So there's plenty of entrepreneurship in the, in the world. The problem are the rules. In two-thirds of the world, there isn't yet the rule of law. Fernando de Soto is one of the world's leading experts in economic development. In his work, DeSoto emphasized the need to extend the rule of law to the poor, who are often left out of the system by a wall of complex regulations that only the rich and well-connected can possibly navigate. A lawyer friend of ours in Lima told us, law is not a problem. Fernando, we set up a small company for you in about 30 days. So we set up a small little workshop outside Lima with two sewing machines and put uh, four students under the supervision of a uh, mature lawyer to go out and take a bus every morning at 8 o'clock and go out and comply with all the legal requirements to have 
those two sewing machines operate at the shirt making factory. And it took them working eight hours a day, 289 days. That's when we became acquainted with the fact that depending on what side of the social scale you were in, the law was either a friend or was the big enemy, and you had to change it. So we talked about it taking 289 days to register a business in Peru. I can guarantee you that if, you know, businessman X uh, from family, you know, A tries to start a business, he could do it within five. And we've actually have research that shows that, that within each country, there's a big range in which things can happen extremely fast and efficiently in developing countries. If you know the minister, if you have connections, and if you don't, you're on the other end. So it's not that people don't have the capacity to be much uh, more efficient, it's that uh, the access is not democratized. The legal systems are simply unfriendly to poor people. Poor people are really hostile to is markets that are manipulated, and markets that are not competitive. Markets in which there isn't a level playing field, there's oligopolies, cartels. When you go from these heavy, oppressive, authoritarian regimes, communist regimes, and you replace them with oligarchies, you haven't really done anything substantial economically. You can have all kinds of people trading things that you could, in a sense, call mini-capitalists. But when those markets are restricted, this is not a free economy. Just as there are people who use communism to simply to stay in power and to be able to have a discourse, some kind of a speech that allows them to justify the reason of their permanence in power, well, some businessmen use uh, all the intellectual structures of capitalism to preserve their own privileges, but in fact they're futile because it's very hard to get inside the game without their permission. They use the terms but not the content. One place where the rule of law problem is vividly apparent is in the area of property rights. Imagine if there were no private property. If you didn't even know who owned the land you lived on. It wouldn't only change the way you work, it would change the way you view the world. Now in the West, we take private property for granted. But lack of clear private property rights is one of the greatest challenges facing the developing world. In some countries, over 70% of the land has no clear title. You can't get out of poverty without private property. The rule of law is more than property. But what I'm saying is that what makes people interested in the rule of law, the first thing that they understand is that everybody on this earth lives on a plot of land. We're earthlings. And so if you come around and say, look, we have found rules that determine how far you can go and how far somebody else can go, are you going to share or not share water? Are you going to have passing rights or not have passing rights? That's the first thing that anybody needs to understand the rule of law. It's quite clear 
that when you go to the third world and people are warring against each other, there's high crimes, uh, there are ethnic rivalries. Once you settle the issue of who lives where and who does what with who, people start understanding the value of standard rules. That you not only have to have rules that you and your group respect, but that everybody understands. That moment, the simplest person can understand the law. Probably right, a terrible problem. Terrible, terrible problem. Like 60, 70% of our people are farmers. Just imagine. If you have 10 million farmers who have no, no title for the land they're farming on, we haven't got green title in Ghana. It's very, very difficult. You buy land, you have to buy it four or five times. If you're looking for farmland, as a small peasant farmer, looking for five acres to buy, you can get five acres from the chief by giving him a drink. But you don't own the five acres. So you can't go to the bank with the five acres as your collateral to, to then borrow money to buy a tractor. You can't start an economy without ownership not being questioned. This is my fundamental. A property right as opposed to sovereignty means it doesn't have a flag, it belongs to smaller groups of people, and it's fungible, it can be sold, it can be bought. So say you're not given a property right, let's look at all the indigenous people of the Americas who never got a property right, so that they couldn't lose it, they couldn't drink it away, they couldn't do a bad investment, did they keep it? No, they've lost it much more than those who are getting property rights today. So, in each case, what we should do is go to indigenous people and say, what do you want? Sovereignty, so that the Indian chief decides what's going to happen, or property rights, I can tell you the answer right away. But they're not generally given those options. One of the great sad stories is something that looks like the start of a real honest industrial revolution started in China about the 10th century. They had some small iron smelters and people who owned them kept reinvesting in increased production and they got bigger and bigger and they suddenly started making all kinds of agricultural utensils out of, out of iron steel. And these heat blast furnaces going day and night. And of course, it's all coming on boats down the Yangtze and the Yellow and all oh, that's good stuff. And eventually, the Mandarins discovered this was going on and that ordinary people were getting rich. They stopped it, they closed it down. The whole thing stopped and went away. Look. A great historian of Asia put it well. He said, private property is not secure. And that's the first and last and total answer to why there was no development in the East. If they can come and take my steel mill away from me and close it down, well, my relatives have learned let's not, no point starting again. Let's get a government job. essential role in economic development, but there's evidence that their effect runs much deeper. Here in Argentina, there's an interesting study to see what happens when people who did not have private property get private property. Well, it not only changes their economic relationship with others, it actually changes their worldview. We found that 
the people in the title process, they trust each other more. We found that children in the title houses are more likely to go into secondary school. They uh, have a lower school uh, absenteeism. They have better health. They, they show lower uh, teenage uh, pregnancies. Land title integrated them to the average uh, population, and now they seem to share the belief and the values of the more average population, although they are still quite poor. The roots of widespread private property can be found in the Judeo-Christian... Okay, so uh, we're starting to talk about solutions. Fernando de Soto is huge in that. Tomorrow uh, we'll be talking about uh, another individual who's had a huge impact and, and, uh, and something that is a little closer to something that we might, I'm not saying would be, but we might be able to get involved in. And uh, yes? Can you identify when helping someone becomes enabling them to do nothing? Well, you're talking about on an individual local basis? Yeah. You know, I, my plan is to talk about that uh, like on the fifth day here. But uh, uh, clearly, if an individual, you know, I read about uh, one, gen one guy shared his story on a mission trip where he was painting a house, and the, and the strong, healthy teenage boys who lived in that house were sitting on the front porch. That'd be a pretty clear example. Um, you know, uh, I think, I think um, but it kind of starts before that. It kind of starts before that in the sense of partnering. If, if we ourselves have, have sort of said what the activity is going to be to help these people, and there's less uh, chance that they're going to buy into it and be involved in it. If we have kind of partnered with them, let them try to help them use uh, their power to think and to do, to come up with the plan themselves and to envision the benefits for them, there's a much better chance that they will you know, buy into it and take part in it. I've read of uh, you know, mission trips or... or Churches who have gone to places and installed, you know, an electric generator. And uh, six, seven months later, they got a letter saying, uh, you know, your generator is broke down. Could you come and fix it? You know? <laughs> and uh, so there's a lot to partnering so that people, people own, take ownership. But I would say in the short answer to your question, if a person is not willing, if a person is not doing things, uh, one person said, and I don't know if I buy this totally, but I certainly had an I've tried to make it have an influence on me. One person said uh, paternalism, and, and uh, he said, don't do anything for anybody that they can do for themselves. That's pretty strong, but uh, it's certainly something to keep in mind to think about. And I just said that to a person not too long ago who called me up and asked me about taking her to, uh, down to social services, and this person's been in this country for quite a while, and I don't know how it sounded, because I said, you know, I, I think you can do that yourself. And I think it might have been a little bit of a shock, because maybe they weren't used to that with me, but, and I, you know, but 
So anyway. In other words, it's an individual basis. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I can't say, I can't give you a rule for every. <laughs> okay. One, uh, um, I watch this and I love Adra. So I want to know, do you feel that Adra is on point with this? They do have programs where they're doing cow bank and doing these other things. Do we feel that Adra is our own organization? Are we doing what? Or do we need to have more there? Should we be picking certain projects thinking that they just lines up with this or the other ones don't? How do we determine the leader? I really don't know. I, I wanted to learn. I, I do know that I really enjoy the videos that ADRA has on their website, different individuals' lives who have been changed and so on. I enjoy that. Uh, and uh, ADRA usually helps the community, like Africa, they drill. This village of no water. Right, they drill well. Drill well, everybody drills. Okay. Yeah. There's no political things involved. Yeah. Pure community service. And that's the kind of what they do. They went to Burma. They're doing the same thing. Yes. Praise God. All right. Let me just say a short prayer. I have to let you go. Okay. Father in heaven, just thank you uh, for light and understanding regarding uh, our poverty-stricken brothers and sisters in this world. Just lead us and guide us. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. This media was brought to you by Audioverse, a website dedicated to spreading God's word through free sermon audio and much more. If you would like to know more about Audioverse, or if you would like to listen to more sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.